Please turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 5. As you're well aware, the chapter breakdowns in the Bible are not inspired, and two of the ones that are the most difficult to deal with are here in chapters 5 and 6. As we come to chapter 5, verse 1, it begins, the verse words are, in freedom or to freedom, Christ has made us free. And we're to stand fast, therefore. Actually, 5-1 is connected with chapter 4, but it is a good transition to the rest of chapter 5. What's interesting, though, a lot of people are looking at a verse like that, have taken it as a license to do a lot of things that they would like to do. And as you look at this, it, the qualification for this comes down in verse 13. You are called to freedom, brethren, only. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The freedom we have in Christ is a freedom summed up in these words, through love serve one another. In light of this, he goes on to say in verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The way this takes place in verse 16 is that we walk by the Spirit, and in so doing, we will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And then as he comes down further in verse 22, he then says to us that the fruit of the Spirit then is love. And as you're well aware there, the love is, the fruit is singular, and love is that fruit of, of the ministry of the Spirit. All of the things that follow, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you are to compare this with 1 Corinthians 13, you will find that they are all outgrowths of love. Therefore, the basic issue here is love, as we've seen in chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, as is summed up here in 5.22. The unfortunate thing is that we have a chapter break in chapter 6 here because what happens is then you tend to separate this from what precedes and it should not be. What we have in chapter 6 is what happens if in fact we let the Holy Spirit fill our lives, change our lives and give us a new motivation, new way of life. And it's interesting as we come into chapter 6, actually it is the life of the Spirit practically laid out in your life and mine. As you look at chapter 6, one of the things that stands out here, and again, I think as you look at any passage, trying to figure out what a passage says. I recall in seminary being told you should not have more than seven points to a message. I have come to feel over the years that more than one is, is beyond what people can take. And actually, if you look at a passage, one is all that you have. If you look at a passage, there's a main theme to a passage. And in chapter 6, we need to find the main theme. And it isn't in verse 1, it isn't in verse 2, it's all the way down in the very last verse in verse 10, 6, 1 to 10. While we have opportunity, and the main thought of all of chapter 6, verses 1 to 10, is right here, let us do that which is beneficial to all men. I would stop at this point if we had the time this morning to deal with just that part alone before you even move on to the end of the verse. Let us do what is beneficial to everybody. I suppose the best way is to go back to the story Jesus himself told, the story you know well, the Good Samaritan. As the fellows on the freeway between Jerusalem and Jericho, the thugs run his car off the side of the road, they pull him out, they beat him up, they leave him there. It is a preacher that follows along very shortly, called a priest who follows along and he sees this fellow at the side of the road 
and uh, does what uh, many preachers do. He moves over into the fast lane because the traffic is starting to pile up there. And he moves off in the fast lane because he has a very important meeting to attend. In fact, last week he was late to that meeting and they didn't get the tee off on time and so therefore he's in a hurry. Uh, it is not long after that his assistant comes by, his associate, the CE director. He sees exactly the same thing, not knowing that the pastor had done this previous. He does the same thing. He moves over in the fast lane. He bypasses the fellow. And actually, of course, in his case, it's because he's taught everybody who must be there on time. He's got an appointment down at Coco's and needs to meet with some staff and doesn't want to be late. And therefore, he rushes past. It is not long after that that a contractor pulls up and sees the same accident. He has his pickup and he's got the camper shell in the back with the tools and he stops and he takes this fellow and puts him in the back, takes him down to a hospital and lets them know that he has a, some guys waiting to start a job, but he says, I'll, I'll be back this evening and I'll pay the bill. And you know the story, that's what happened. I tell it in that sense because I was the preacher, see? And I pulled off the freeway to go on Sunset Boulevard down to preach in a church on a Sunday evening. I saw the fellow by the side of the road, and he was an old man in an old car, and I know it was old. It was made out of genuine metal, and uh, his wife was sitting next to him. She was old, and I took it, could not drive, because she's sitting there, and he by himself is trying to push this heavy car off of Sunset Boulevard onto a side street because it wouldn't run. I sitting there and rationalizing in my American way, which is not a biblical way, that time is more important than anything else. And I am going to preach in a church, and actually if I got there a half hour late, they'd still be singing, so it wouldn't matter. But somehow not wanting to offend them, I thought of what I ought to do, and I did not do what I ought to do. I bypassed him to make sure I got to church on time so some beloved people would not be offended. It was I whose car broke down and was right next to a Christian college campus. And so I know a lot of believers passed by and they drove by and didn't do anything. And here came a contractor in a pickup and he came and tried to help me get the car started. And when it wouldn't start, he says, I will tow you right to your house. Amazed you see, because I, the one who teach the word, don't have time for other people. I'm so busy in the work of God, don't have time to do that which is beneficial to all men. It is time somehow that we stop getting so involved in that which we do in the Christian community to look at a world around us that needs somehow to feel the touch of people who care enough to stop just to be there for them. I, I move on from this because we don't have time to deal with this, but I must move on. Notice what happens. So that's what he starts out with. But notice what he says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The question comes this morning, how do I do what is beneficial to the household of faith? I know I must do what is beneficial to those outside of the body of Christ. How do I do that which is beneficial to the body of Jesus Christ? To deal with that, we go back to verse 1 and begin verses 1 and following. The way to do what is beneficial to those in the body of Christ, he notes in verse 1, there, first of all, here is the situation, brethren, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, the spirit of gentleness. First of all, this is uh, involving brethren or brothers, those who are believers in Christ. We are those who are part of a family. And a relationship is that of brothers and sisters. If a man is caught, and again we stop at this point because one of the problems that happens so often, you have seen it, 
I have seen it, and as you go along in life, you will find it happens so often. People are destroyed in ministry not for something they have done, but for something that somebody thinks that they have done. You get a call on the telephone, and it's sister so-and-so who's telling you that brother so-and-so called to say the sister so-and-so called and said that brother so-and-so said that. And again, they, they make it very clear. They say, now, I'm telling you, I don't know this for a fact, and I'm only telling you because I realize how, how concerned you are and how much you want to pray. And although I'm not sure, I realize that you'll like to pray for these people, and that's not the reason they're calling at all. Many of us are prone to do that. We talk about people. We spread stuff about people. We have no evidence whatsoever. And there are people whose lives and ministries are destroyed because we take action against them without even knowing what they're doing is, in fact, wrong. And you notice what happens here if a man is caught in any trespass. Interesting in the passage, it says in any trespass. We have our categories of the kinds of trespasses we will accept and the kind we will not accept. And he says here, if a person is caught in any trespass of any kind. It is interesting what he says at this point. He says, you who are leaders in the church are supposed to be involved in ministering. And it doesn't say that. It says, you who are spiritual. Again, the context of this goes back to chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Those who have love, 522, those who have joy, those who have peace, those who have patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these are the ones, and these only are the ones who are supposed to take action. It is so easy for us to censor. It is so hard for many of us to soothe. It is so easy for us to be faithful to the Word of God. It's so hard for us to be full of sympathy and compassion for those who are hurting. But it says here that only those who are spiritual are to be involved. And notice what they're to do. The word is restore. It is an exciting verb in the New Testament because it is used in many ways. And we can't cover that this morning. But uh, many exciting places where this is found. One of them I like very, very much is 1 Peter chapter 5 where it says, After we've suffered for a little while, God, the God of all grace will himself do this for us. He will put the pieces together. The verb is used in the sense of repairing nets for one thing. When they had fishing nets that were broken, they repaired them. And the purpose of repairing them was for greater usefulness. It is used outside of the New Testament in a medical sense of a doctor repairing a broken bone. I had a daughter who was attending here until this semester. And now she's attending close to home for a while. And uh, I recall years ago, and I remember the day well, it was New Year's Day because it was football day. And uh, it was when the roller skate craze was on and she came in on that day and she says, Daddy, I fell down and hurt my arm. I took her to the hospital that day and I recall it very clearly because uh, hardly anybody was there working. So you had to wait forever for her to be taken care of. And actually, we got there in the morning. We're there till late in the afternoon before it was finally taken care of. And it was also interesting because there were a lot of others there at the same time. And she was the only teenager. And there were about five others who had the same problem. They'd been on roller skates and fallen and broken some bone. One of them was a father in his 40s. And he had been out looking for a sale for his son for Christmas found such a good bargain he bought a pair for his son and for his wife and for himself and on new year's day went out to show his son how he used to be able to skate 20 years before and he was there 
And I recall being down with my daughter. I'd say, "Hun, I love you. And then I'd run upstairs to check the score on the TV and then come back to see her again. Well, what I remember about the day very clearly is after all of the x-rays and everything else was done, the doctor, having taken that bone and they, that arm and they placed it inside of a cast and it was still soft. And I'm not so sure exactly what or how he did it, but he took that small arm in his hands and squeezing ever so gently and quickly, he set it in place. She winced a bit, but you know today, I don't know that she could even tell you which arm was broken because he restored it again to its usefulness. That's what's here. You know, I'm appalled as I watch the news the last couple of days. In fact, it's so sickening. I, I want to turn the thing off when I watch the policeman beating that fellow who was down on the ground. That's one of those sickening sights that I have ever seen. But let me tell you, we as believers do that. We do. We have a way not of repairing, but of destroying, not of restoring to usefulness, but somehow taking that bone that is broken, instead of gently squeezing it back into place, we somehow marvel in the fact that we can take it and open it up further so everybody can see the role of the child of God, who is a spiritual child of God, is not that he does not condemn sin, but alongside of condemning sin, he is there to be one who is full of compassion to bring healing once again. And is it not significant that David, when he sinned and God offered him three choices, said that he would much rather fall into the hands of God than fall into the hands of man? Notice what happens, you see, restore such a one, repair such a one in the spirit of gentleness. And of course, it is gentleness because the fruit of the spirit in verse 23 of chapter 5 is gentleness. And if you are not gentle, you don't belong in the life of someone who's fallen to sin. If you're not one who can come along and in the fruit of the spirit, filled with the spirit, showing the love of God, if you cannot be there to heal, you don't belong in the ministry to the life of that individual. It is interesting, though, this is the first command. The command is to repair. It is interesting, there are three commands here, but notice with each command is a caution. The caution in chapter 6, verse 1, looking to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. I recall this, uh, as I think back years ago, I was teaching a summer school class, and a fellow came to class that morning. He says, did you read the Associated Press article this morning? And I said, which one? He told me what happened. There was a 52-year-old president of a Bible college. He had started the school. It was one of the largest of its kind. He had run off with a 19-year-old co-ed. They said, he, I've talked to people since that time. The fellow played tennis regularly in very good shape. Nice-looking guy. Ran off with a 19-year-old co-ed. His wife stayed behind as the dean of women in this school. He left a tape that the student body listened to. I was ministering in Canada just a couple of years ago, and uh, there was a couple who came to minister in music, and they were students in that school at that time, and they shared the heartache of their experience. But it was interesting when that happened that one of the fellows in class hearing the story said, how in the world could a guy do a thing like that? Friend, if you've walked this earth long enough as a child of God, you know how a person could do a thing like that. And you say, but by the grace of God, there go I. But it's interesting because in that class that day was another student who got up and just walked out of class, left all his books and went away, 
came back that afternoon. He says, I'm sorry for leaving this morning. He says, that was the man who led me to Christ. He says, that was the man who discipled me. He says, I didn't know what else to do. He says, I just went out and wept. You know, I'll tell you, when I hear of so much that's happening today, the very first thing I do is take heed to myself, lest I also be tempted. For but by the grace of God there go I. That's the caution. Go with me, if you will, quickly to the next one. The next one is a very interesting one, where in verse 2 it says, Bear one another's burdens. It does not define the kinds of burdens here. We do not know what kind of burdens. They can be burdens of sin. They can be burdens of sorrow. We don't know what they are. It is interesting because he said it doesn't say put up with one another's burdens. It says bear them. I think it's easy for us sometimes somebody is hurting badly and somehow we say, well, you know, we're not going to add to their burden. But we don't come alongside to do anything to be there for them. And in the context of this passage is bear one another's burdens and notice and thus fulfill the law of Christ and the law of Christ if you go back again to chapter 5 and verse 14 the whole law is fulfilled in one word love your neighbor as yourself what I want to spend a bit of time on this morning though is the caution that goes with this one it is significant in verse 3 it says for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing he deceives himself and you read that and say how in the world does that have anything to do with bearing somebody else's burden. Let me take you back, and I need to for a while, just in my own personal life. I was a missionary's son, and I was left in a mission home in Canada when I was five years old, just about six. My folks were opening up a new field that had not been opened up before, and for very good reasons felt that they could not take my older brother and myself with them. So therefore, I was left in that home, and during that time, uh, I set some records that aren't the greatest records, but I did. And it was daily I would come home from school, and it was sort of a ritual for a while. You get spanked and put to bed, and a meager supper somehow to try to correct what you're doing. And I remember one time writing a letter to my folks to tell them how bad it was, and they read this letter, and they tore it up and made me rewrite the letter again. Do you know what you learn when you're like that? You learn somehow at that age to stand on your own two feet and be able to take care of yourself and fend for yourself. And somehow you get to the place where you've been hurt enough, you're not going to let anybody ever hurt you again. And I did that. And it was very easy to do. I mean, you don't even intentionally do it. You just do it. It's a matter of self-preservation. And I love reaching out to minister to others. I love being there for others. But I will never forget it. It happened in a class because I was taking prayer requests and we pray a lot in class and we've seen God answer incredible requests over the years. And I was taking prayer requests one day and, and I remember the student put up his hand. He's a pastor today and he said to me, he says, you know, appreciate the fact you pray for us. But do you have nothing for which we can pray for you? Well, I'll tell you, I was so insecure in where I was that I'll tell you, we prayed so fast that day. Me, share with them my hurts. But God has been gracious to me. You see, I thought I was something. Huh? I thought somehow people needed me, but I didn't need them, and I could make it on my own. 
And, and I had to realize, you see, if somebody thinks they're something when actually they're nothing, the only person they deceive is themselves. You're here today, many of you, and I would say to many of you as men, but it's not only men, it's women as well. Somehow, for many of you men, somehow you, you want to suck it in and you want to be sufficient and stand on your own two feet and make it. There's not one of us who does not need other people. I have changed so drastically in my relationship in class today, and I'll never forget the time, and it was not an intentional thing, but I had gone through a tough, tough weekend where I had had some painful stuff happen like I'd never experienced before, and I walked to class the next Tuesday, and I, I don't like in between me and the students, and I had a desk like this, and I sat on the desk, and I can still remember doing it, and I said to the class, I hurt today worse than I have ever hurt in my life before. I would never have done that before. What you see, it was shared even this morning. You see, we are just like you are. We have hurts. We have needs. When I go into a class now, I go in with a sense they need me, but I also need them, and I share my heart with them, and I share my burdens with them. Oh, there's some things it says here in verse 5 that we have to bear alone, and there's some things that nobody else can bear for us. But I'll tell you something that's interesting in verse 4. He says, let each man examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting regard to himself alone and not regard to another. The another here is another of a different kind, and so many times as we look at ourselves, we compare ourselves with somebody else, and we say, my, they stand so strong like this, and they're so tough like this, and therefore you see we're going to be strong and tough because that's what they're like. Don't compare yourself with anybody else. Be who God meant you to be. Function as God meant for you to function and don't try to look at somebody else and say, if this is what they are, this is what I'm going to be like because many of them are suffering and struggling in a way that you will never, ever, ever understand. My son is attending here now and he's not here this morning, so that's what he gets for not coming. Um, Actually, he doesn't have class today, but anyhow. I have watched him grow up, and I just say this to you as those who are young men here. You've watched us, some of us who are older men, who are trying to be tough and hang in there and show that we can suck it up and make it. And somehow you deal with a tenderness in your own soul, and you don't know how to make that reconcile with the, the fact of becoming a man. And I've watched my son go through this in a way that daughters don't go through that. And I tell you, I just say to you, it's part of don't compare yourself with anybody else. Let God do in you as God would do. And as I talk to men who are going to ministry, teaching in seminary all these years, one of the things I say to them, don't try to preach like somebody else. Don't try to act like somebody else. Preach as God meant you to preach. Act as God meant you to act. But be all that God meant you to be. I must move on, verse 6. We must repair in verse 1, and the caution to that is take heed to yourself. We must bear in verse 2. The caution to that is be aware of the fact that we need others to bear for us just as they need us to bear for them. Verse 6, we must share. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. I don't think most of us are in this spot right now, what this is talking about. You're in a ministry and someone has shared the word of God with you. 
And the role is that you are to share back with them in beneficial things. And that's what it says, all good things. The word good is the idea of beneficial. It is a sense of sharing with those who share with you. I would say with some of you, though, one of the things that you need to learn in life, and many of us struggle to learn, is letting others share with you as you minister to them. I love to do for people, and sometimes it's not as easy to receive from people as it is to give to people. And uh, I recall some experiences because uh, I love, if somebody has a need, I love being there to help them meet the need. I love trying to help them with stuff they do. And there's a fellow who came into my life, an interesting situation. I was going to add on to my house, and I was going to do it all myself. I ran all the, dug all the ditches, and ran all the plumbing, and did the electrical, and this kind of stuff. And I was out in a church as an interim just started the very first week, and nobody knew, I didn't think. And here, Sunday night after the service is over, the man came up to me, and, and he said to me, he says, you know, he says, um, I hear you're adding on to your house. And I said, I am. He said, uh... I usually go to Alaska to help missionaries during the summer, but he says, I can't go this year, but he says, I can surely travel to your place. And he was there the next day, and uh, it was interesting because when I had to rush to the church for Wednesday night, he was staying up there finishing something on the roof. And then I remember a fellow who is a friend of mine who came to my life. I was teaching a Sunday school class. He wanted to help me work on cars, and I like working on cars, but he can do much better. And so he would have me come over there, and I saw people taking advantage of him. So I wouldn't go for a while, and uh, he called one day, he says, where have you been? I says, I don't like to see people taking advantage of others, and I see people taking advantage of you. And I'll never forget what he said. See, I have ministered to him for many years. And he responded to me, and he says, and I thought you were my friend. You know, somehow we need to learn to let others share with us. But I would say to you, the real reason here that we need to remember this for ourselves is to broaden it further. If someone ministers to you, we need in kind to go minister to them. Not because we owe them something, but just if God allows us to minister to them in some way. This is what he's saying here. And it's interesting because the caution here is often taken out of context. The caution has to do with sharing with others. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. The caution to the passage is, and this is the context in which it is, as people minister to you, we are to share with them in the ways that we can minister to them in return. And they do one thing for us, we do something for them. And again, not as tit for tat or not because I owe you something, but just because that is what God has enabled us to do. And if in fact we don't do that, he says, we will not reap. And it's interesting, a context actually. This is the caution for verse 6, but it ties in with all of them. Some of us say, well, you know, what happens is, you know, I may not repair somebody's life and restore them to ministry, but at least I don't, you know, come in and add to the pressure. No. The issue is, it isn't ours to just stand by and watch. I think of that the other day, the sergeant standing there while the guy's beat, and he did nothing to cause the damage, but he did nothing to stop it. He did nothing to provide healing. And you and I have the responsibility, he says, be careful what we sow, that is what we shall reap. The same thing with bearing one another's burdens. There are people who hurt badly, and I think often we don't realize who it is that is hurting. 
I recall a fellow who administered in our church. He and his wife had been saved. They'd sung opera together. And they were ministering around quite a bit. And we went to the mission field, came back and found out they were divorced. The man was ministering in a church at the time when I came back. And one day they found him in the garage with his car engine on. And as I'm told, a present for his child sitting on the seat beside him. And I think of those who might have seen him in church ministering the week before and think, well, that guy's got it together. No, the guy's hurting and in need and the kind of thing where he says we're supposed to reach out. Not maybe you say, I don't add to their burden. No, it's a matter of lifting the burden and being there to minister to them. And many times we don't realize who it is. But notice when we're to do this. He says in this passage in verse 10, while we have opportunity. It is so easy for us to think, well, I will minister to someone when I have time. And we do it so businesslike these days. We have office hours just like doctors do. Someone calls in us and say, well, you better make an appointment. That's not what he's talking about here. When God brings the opportunity to our life to minister to somebody else, that is when we are to respond. Not when we're ready, but when God is ready. And it is so easy for us to define the time and try to defend it because we have so much to do. God, who is the one who sovereignly guides in all of these things, brings the people into our lives who have need of us at the given time, and we are to be there to minister to them. And we never know when in the world it may be too late if, in fact, we don't step in today. I will never forget the occasion in a church where I had been speaking for some time and uh, the church was full. In fact, they'd open up the side section and uh, there was a girl who was singing in the choir. She'd been singing there week after week and um, single girl. She came to church on a Sunday night in testimony time. She got up to give her testimony. She says, I walked out of here this morning and she says, I was so lonely. She says, so lonely, I didn't want to go home and be by myself, so I went to a restaurant just so I could be around people. And she says, I just praise God this evening because he led me to somebody as lonely as I was who was able to minister to me. As she said that, I reflected because, see, I was there ministering that morning. I heard her minister to me. And yet somehow as I walked out, I had my own schedule for the afternoon, be it a football game or whatever, something that would interfere with somehow reaching out to just be there for somebody else. And you see, the opportunity was there, and many of us bypassed the opportunity and watch a girl walk out into loneliness because we weren't there to minister for her. And I realize there are times they should share with us, but there are times we need to be sensitive. And when the opportunity is there, we need to be those who minister. But notice something. Why are we to do this? He says, verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. What are we to do? We're supposed to do that which is beneficial by repairing and bearing and sharing. When are we to do it? When the opportunity comes, why are we to do it? Because in due time we will reap if we don't grow weary. Um, I think of that so often in many ways because we get tired of doing things for other people when somehow they don't respond to us. And some of you do that. 
Some of you reach out to help other people. It's how you're inclined to do or you feel led of God to do. And yet as you do that, somehow they don't respond to you. They don't say thank you. They don't reciprocate in any way. And somehow you feel overly burdened by this. I know it's a rather mundane thing, but there are some things that uh, I remember years ago when I was growing up. I had taken my mother shopping one day because she couldn't drive. And I brought her home from the grocery store, and I got out of the car, and I walked to the front door. I had these bags of groceries in my arm, and nothing was said. No horn was honked. Nothing happened. And yet as I, I walked to the house, something seemed horribly wrong. And so I stopped for a while and looked back at the car. And there was my dear mother sitting there, just looking straight out the window, saying nothing, doing nothing, and I knew the problem. I put the groceries down in a hurry, went open the door for her. She said, thank you very much, and she walked into the house. I've been raised that way. My wife, who was here, was bothered in my years in college because we only had a few minutes between one class and another, and she thought we'd never get there on time because I'd stand forever opening a door. Uh, I got to UCLA and almost was cured, you see, because when I was attending there, you'd open the door for a lady, or at least I thought she was, and somehow she <laughs> was determined to show me that she could open a door herself, so she'd walk to another door just intentionally, and so somehow you want to say, you know what, it isn't worth it. I did it just yesterday, by the way, and well, this morning, and the lady said, thank you. There are some out there who do. But you know, it is interesting because somehow after a while just doing some of these things, you tire of doing them because you think people don't care, they don't respond, they're not appreciative. He says, don't lose heart in doing good because in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. The year was 1954. The occasion was the British Empire Games, which are being held in the Empire Stadium in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, where I was born. I know of this story not because I read it, but because I've talked to those who were there that day. It was the last day of the British Empire Games. They were concluding with a marathon. And the papers, all of the sport writers, sports writers knew who was going to win that day it was a fellow by the name of Jim Peters. He was a very good marathon runner. And actually, he didn't let them down as he left the stadium. I saw a fellow recently, and he says, I remember watching it. He says, I watched it on television right next to the stadium. Then I raced down to the street to watch them go by. And Peters was in front the whole way, never behind. Fact of the matter is, the whole 26 miles coming around to the stadium, Peters was in front. He came to the stadium, and it's interesting because you watch them run marathons these days, and if they even beat a record by a few seconds, people are amazed and get an awful lot of money for it because just a few seconds better than the world record or whatever. This guy came to the stadium over two minutes again ahead of the then world record in a marathon. When he came to the stadium, which was packed full of people, everybody sensed that something spectacular was happening, and so they stood to their feet and began to cheer. And he came to that ramp that started up into the stadium where the vehicles would go in and out of the stadium, and that's all he had to do was go up that ramp. He'd run 26 miles, or almost 26. He only had the 600 yards to go, one and a half laps around the uh, stadium there, and then he would be through. But as he started up that ramp, it was too much for him, and he fell. 
At this point, you see they're cheering, but then there's a hush in the audience because he's not coming up. And then he came up onto the track and he began to crawl around. He had plenty of time. No one else was even close to him. If you have heard the stories and some will recall back in those days, they had cinder tracks. It was different than it is today. And finally, when he could go no further, he put his head, forehead down into that cinder track and began to push himself just to see if he could get around. When he couldn't do that, he turned himself over on his back and began to do the same thing, pushing himself and the cinders cutting into the back of his head. By this time, this, those who were there said there wasn't a sound in the stadium except people weeping. Finally, when he could go no farther, somebody threw a towel over him and the race was ended. The next day, people clamored for him to receive some kind of an award. Look at how far he had run. Look at how well he'd done. But you see, you can't get an award unless you win the race. I didn't hear the sequel to the story till a while later. It was a Scottish fellow running the same race. I don't even know his name, and maybe that's part of the significance of the whole thing, too. He arrived in a place in Vancouver, if anybody knows the area, a place called Burnaby. He'd fallen a couple of times, and by that time he was weary, and he, he ran through a hedge into a yard of a lady, and he fell down on the lawn and just lay there and decided he quit. The only problem is he was a Scottish lad and the owner of the house was a Scottish lady. And she walked out and sees this young man lying there and she says, she asked him what the problem was and he says, I'm too tired, I can't go any further. And some of you have run in a marathon, you understand that kind of thing, but he says, I can't go any further. And she looked down at him and all she said to him is, laddie, you're a Scot and you never give up. Like a shot from a gun, he stood to his feet, and all he could hear as he went back onto the street is, Laddie, you're a Scot and you never give up. And he began to run. He didn't know what place he was in. He didn't even care. He was just a Scot and he was never going to give up. He came to the same stadium, ran up the same ramp, got the same reception. The crowd stood to their feet and they cheered because he was, in fact, the winner of the race. Might I say to you, okay, today, it's a part of the Christian life. We are children of God and we never give up. Never give up. We're always there for people and in spite of what anybody else does, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect what we do. We are those filled by the Spirit of God and as those filled by the Spirit of God, we're going to let God use us to do those beneficial things for everybody, especially for those of the household of faith. When people fall into sin, we're going to be there to repair them and bring them back to usefulness again. When people hurt, we're going to be there to bear their burdens with them and be a part of their life. When people minister to us, we're going to reach back and return and minister to them and share with them. Why? Because, you see, we will in due time reap if we do not grow weary. Let's pray.